This evening, as we continue our study of practical Christianity, we're going to be talking about a very important subject. And really, to introduce that subject this evening, I want you just to watch the screen for a few moments as we move through a number of slides. Because I think that they speak for themselves. I don't really have to tell you what an impact friends make on our life. So just enjoy those slides for a moment. It's true, isn't it, that we all need friends. And tonight as we think about practical Christian living, I want us to think about choosing good companions. In Proverbs chapter 1, Solomon addresses one of the most important choices that we make and that is the choice of our friends. In verse 1, he exhorts, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. And then he further exhorts, My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path, for their feet run to evil. You know, choosing wrong friends is worse than having no friends at all. The passage before you is one that we will repeat a number of times in the lesson this evening. It is quoted from the American Standard Version of 1901 because I think it is the best rendering for us to consider. Be not deceived. Evil companionships corrupt good morals. That is true because their ideals and their standards quickly become our ideals and our standards. In Proverbs 13 and verse 20, Solomon said, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. In this lesson tonight, I want to share with you a number of Bible principles that will help us to be wise in the choice of our friends. And this lesson is also intended to be a help to those of you who are parents, that you can guide your children in the wise choice of their friends. In part one of our lesson this evening, 
Let's consider our need for friends. Why do we need friends? Well, in the first place, we need friends because God created us social beings. Even in the paradise of Eden, God acknowledged that it was not good for the man to be alone. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. The intermingling of our lives with other people's lives is as God intended. In Romans chapter 14 and verse 7, Paul said, For none of us lives unto himself, and no one dies unto himself. So because we're created social creatures, we need friends. But we also need friends because we need what friends provide. Now that, of course, is a two-way street. They need what we provide as well. Life is so much more pleasant when we have those who care for us and those for whom we care. There was a time in David's life when he lamented, No one cares for my soul. Psalm 142. 2 and verse 4. How sad when we feel that way. It's just a wonderful thing to know that there are people who care for us and for whom we care, come what may. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. We need the love that friends have for us. We ought to cherish the love that they show for us in word and in deed. And we ought to show that love, express and demonstrate that love for them. The Bible says that love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 7 and 8. We need those with whom we can share our lives. Whether it's our joys or it's it's our sorrows. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 15, Paul said, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We most certainly need people who will help us when we are down. Proverbs 27 and verse 9 says, Ointment and perfume delight the heart, and the sweetness of a man's friend gives delight by hearty counsel. We even need friends with whom we can enjoy relaxation and recreation from the routines and the pressures of life. Isn't it a wonderful thing? Isn't it a blessing just to be able to laugh with friends? A merry heart does good like a medicine. Proverbs 17 and verse 22. Folks, I'm just emphasizing the fact that we need friends. We need life companions. But perhaps we've gotten ahead of ourselves. What is a friend? You know, I consulted a number of dictionaries to read the definition of what a friend is. And I've taken the liberty of kind of taking the best of those definitions to 
create a composite for us of what a friend is. A friend is an associate, an acquaintance. A friend is one who is closely attached to us by affection and esteem. A friend is someone that we know well and that we like. A friend is someone that we trust, a companion. I want us just to take a moment to savor the Bible words. The most frequent word for friend in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word ra'ah. It appears 188 times. And it has reference to an associate, to a companion, to a fellow, to a brother. The most frequent word translated friend in the New Testament is the word philos. It appears 29 times, and it means loved and dear. And it suggests loving as well as being loved. But let me put some feet on the definition by looking at some Bible examples. And I want to share two Bible examples with you, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament example has to be that of David and Jonathan because theirs was a classic example of friendship. Their love for each other, their confidence in each other, what a lesson for us. If you'll venture in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 1, you'll find that the Bible says that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Folks, that's friendship. That's friendship. The New Testament example of friendship that I've chosen is that of Paul and Timothy. I've selected that because perhaps in a way it's an amazing friendship. Paul was a much older man. Timothy was a much younger man. Theirs was a friendship, and yet their relationship was something like father and son. As a matter of fact, Paul called him his beloved son in 2 Timothy 1 verse 2. But the confidence that they shared, the love that they shared, no doubt helped both of them weather many a storm. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 2, and I want you to note the glowing words that Paul used when he was describing his young friend Timothy. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 20, he said, For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father he served with me in the gospel. You can hear Paul speaking from experience about the character of that young man, and you can hear the vibrations of love that existed between them. When I use the word friend, when I give you definitions or Bible examples, I think you know that the word friend means the same thing to us today 
as it did to David and Jonathan or as it meant to Paul and Timothy. When we talk about our friends, we are talking about people who mean everything to us. We love them and they love us. They are dear to us and we are dear to them. We care for each other when you count your blessings. When you go to the Father in prayer, be sure to mention your friends. Hold them dear. Cherish them. And make sure that you invest in those friendships. You notice on the screen the word categories. I think we all recognize the fact that it comes down fundamentally to two categories. There are those that are good friends and there are those that are bad friends. Now up to this point in the lesson, obviously, I've been talking about good friends. Good friends are those who are not just good to us, but they are good for us. We must be careful not to choose friends that are bad for us. We must be careful not to choose friends who will lead us astray. Remember, evil companionship corrupts good morals. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33. And that, by the way, brings us to the next part of our lesson. I want us to talk for a few moments about the danger of peer pressure. The pressure that our companions, our friends, can can put on us. First of all, what is peer pressure? When I went to the internet, I consulted a number of dictionaries on it. And I think by just mentioning a few of those definitions, we can get a pretty good handle on what peer pressure is. McMillan Dictionary said that peer pressure is the influence that other people of your age or social class have on the way you behave or dress. The American Heritage Dictionary, a dictionary that I use about every day, says that it is pressure from one's peers to behave in a similar or acceptable manner to them. Another dictionary said peer pressure reflects refers to the influence exerted by a peer group in encouraging a person to change his or her attitudes, values, or behavior in order to conform to group norms. One more time, dictionary.com. Social pressure by members of one's peer group to take a certain action, adopt certain values, or otherwise conform, watch this, otherwise conform in order to be accepted. Folks, we all desire social approval. I mean, I want to be accepted, and you want to be accepted. I want to be a part, and you want to be a part. I want to be appreciated, and you want to be appreciated. I don't want to be excluded. You don't want to be excluded. I don't want to be an oddball. You don't want to be an oddball. Did you just notice that I was talking to all of us? 
Because usually when we think about peer pressure, we think about young folks, right? Young people. And young people experience a lot of peer pressure. But peer pressure is not just a young people thing. We all face the pressure to conform. Take warning. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's interesting that in the original language, the word that is translated conform means to fashion literally, as one translation put it, to press you into its mold. That's the pressure that you and I face. Now, what we must realize is that in addition to the fact that God has created us with the desire for social approval, God has also given us a standard by which to give and to receive such approval. As long as the approval that we give or we withhold is based upon God's standards, then our needs and the needs of other people will be well served. But when we deviate from God's standards in giving or receiving approval, then we do great harm to others and we do great harm to ourselves. Can you think of the first time there was an instance of negative peer pressure in the Bible? I'll tell you when I believe it was. I believe that it was was when Eve ate of that forbidden tree and then gave to Adam, Genesis 3, verse 6, and he ate too. In my mind, the scene goes something like this. Adam, I ate this. Here, Adam, you eat it too. And Adam said, okay. And right there set into motion a societal pressure that has done untold harm to mankind. Think how many people have messed up their life, how many people have fallen because of the pressure exerted upon them by someone else. Folks, we know that pressure. We live with that pressure. And we know that that pressure could destroy us. Amen? We know that. And so, how do we deal with the negative pressure that others exert upon us? I would suggest four things. First of all, we must realize that as long as we live in this world, those pressures will be upon us. We will feel the pressure. So, the power on the inside has to be stronger than the pressure on the outside. Are you listening? 
Several years ago, I was holding a meeting in Colorado Springs. Pam and I went out a few days early, flew out a few days early, and rented a car to do a little uh, vacationing. And so on Saturday, before the meeting started on Sunday, we went to Pike's Peak. We got 13 miles up Pike's Peak. I think it's 19 miles. We got 13 miles up when we were stopped by the ranger. And he said, you can't go any farther. There's a blizzard on up higher. And you've got to turn around and go back. Well, later in the week, we were staying at the home of an Air Force, retired Air Force general, and he took us to Pike's Peak. This time we rode the Cog Elevator uh, Railroad up. I don't know if I'd gotten on that thing if I'd heard the announcement earlier. About a third of the way up on that Cog Railroad, the conductor announced that the Cog Railroad was owned by Gaylord Industries. And I thought, that's the people closed down Opryland. They're not real smart. But we got up to the summit of Pikes Peak. And sure enough, they'd had about two and a half additional feet of snow in the middle of June. They had trenches dug out. But here's where I'm going. My wife had a bottle of water. And while we were up there at that elevation, whatever it was, we drank about two-thirds of that bottle of water. We got about three-fourths of the way back down the railroad off of Pike's Peak, and Pam said, I want you to look. And that bottle was crushed. Why? Because the pressure on the outside was greater than the force on the inside. Are you with me? That's exactly what John was talking about in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4. Would you look at it? He said, you are of God, little children, and you have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. There it is. Folks, as long as we're in this world, we're going to feel that pressure. We've just got to make sure that the power on the inside is greater than the pressure on the outside. Second, we need to accept our innate need for approval. I've spent years studying psychology. I can assure you that what I'm saying is true. There is within each one of us an innate need for approval and acceptance. So, we must look for acceptable ways to receive it. And by that I simply mean that we should seek our approval from those of like precious faith. We should seek our approval from men and women of God. We should seek our approval from those who seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Matthew 6.33 I am counting the days, literally, until Pam and I will be going to polishing the pulpit. This will be my fourth year. I wish I'd been going every year. I didn't know about it. Great speakers, old and young. Very practical thing. Most practical thing I've ever gone to. I understand that 
You guys are sending Chad, and I am glad that you are. It will bless the congregation. Keep doing it. Our congregation send Pam and I. They pay for our hotel bill. They pay for our registration fee. We buy our own meals, buy our own gas. But they send us because it's such a blessing. It blesses us, and then we can be a blessing to them. But let me tell you what the highlight of PTP is to me. The people. People of like precious faith. I preach all year about immodest dress, and people look at me like a toad frog blinking in a hailstorm. I go to PTP, and they've got that whole convention center reserved, and it's got all that big water outfit there, and there's not a single person there because the elders of the church that oversee that work have sent out notices saying, we don't do that as Christians. And all of those beautiful sisters, young and old, that you will see there are modestly dressed. And it's just refreshing to be with people like that, of like precious faith. Seek your acceptance from the right folks. Third. I want to make the point that we don't want to be different just for the sake of being different. There's no merit to being different in behavior and dress and language and diet just for the sake of being different. Underscore this. Be different as called for to be the people of God. Now, I'm wearing a tie tonight. I don't know what woman invented ties. I know none of the men did. But the thing is, you know, preacher, wear the tie. Okay, I'll wear the tie. At least I don't turn my collar backwards. I've got on the tie. That's all right. That's the custom. That's the dress trend. That's all right. No problem with that. But now, me dressing immodestly, that would go against being holy, wouldn't it? So don't be different for the sake of being different. But be different where you need to be different to be the people of God. Are you listening? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. You'll notice in verse 11 that he begins to ask a whole litany of questions in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And then those questions are followed with a statement. Verse 17, therefore, if you want to know about therefore, you've got to look before. You look before at those questions about fellowship, and he says, therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you, I will be a father to you, you shall be my sons and daughter, says the Lord Almighty. Don't stop reading, go right in the next chapter. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfect holiness in the fear of God. Don't try to be different just to be different. But be different to be the people of God. Fourth, we must exercise caution. 
Folks, there are some things that we know that are right and some things that are wrong. Some things are good and some things are bad, but extend beyond that. There are some things that are not bad within themselves. But if you go too far with them, they can become bad and they can become harmful to other people. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul said, Prove or test all things, hold fast to that which is good, and to abstain from the very appearance or every form of evil. Now here he's talking about right and wrong, good and bad. Test it. If it's wrong, don't do it. If it's right, do it. But turn to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. Paul was not talking about right and wrong. He was talking within the confines of things that in and of themselves are all right. And he said, all things are lawful to me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And then later in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 23, he said, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient or helpful or profitable. And those are some things we factor into. I hope these are some helpful ideas about how to deal with negative peer pressure. Now, let's wrap it up tonight with some guidelines for choosing friends. I'm just going to give you two. Number one, realize that what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.33 is correct. That evil companionships corrupt good morals. It's better to have just a few friends or just one friend who will be the right kind of friend than to have a whole multitude of friends who will cause you to lose your soul. If you will allow an adaptation of the Master's question in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, what will it profit a man if he gain a whole world of friends but lose his own soul? And if you don't write down anything else in your mind or in your notebook tonight, if you don't remember anything else about this lesson, I want you to remember this singular statement. Our goal is holiness, not popularity. Our goal is holiness, not popularity. Preached a lesson on modest dress a couple of years ago at the elders' request. And after the Sunday evening service, one of the sisters came out. She has a teenage daughter that I'm not going to describe her dress to you. And she said, I know that's what the Bible says, but I'm not going to have my daughter dress that way because I want her to be popular. Would it surprise you to know that that whole family has since left the church? The world's got them. And guess what happened to the girls? It starts with a P, but it's not popular. Are we surprised? I don't think so. God wants us to be holy, not popular. I'd a whole lot rather be popular with him, wouldn't you? And with his people, his faithful people. 
Number two, choose friends who will be a good example to you. And that's why we ought to choose faithful Christian friends. Choose those who have good morals, whose standard of morality is the word and not the world. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12 is a great text for this. Choose those who are an example to the believers in word, conduct, love, spirit, faith, and purity. Choose friends, companions, who abstain from alcohol and drugs. I think it's fascinating how Peter frames his thought in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3. Listen to how he says this. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness and lust and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable hairs, he said, we spent enough of our past life living that way. We're not going to live that way anymore. Choose friends that are honest. Why? Because you want to have a a noble and a good heart. Luke chapter 8, verse 15. If you choose friends of good character, they will enhance your character. If you choose friends and companions of good reputation, they will enhance your reputation. You know what the world's thinking? Birds of a feather flock together. Choose friends, companions that are law-abiding. Romans 13, verse 3, are rulers... Rulers are not a terror to good work, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authorities? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. What I'm saying to you is, choose friends who respect God. Choose friends who respect spiritual things. Choose friends who put spiritual things above secular friends or things. A true friend is one who will strengthen you spiritually and draw you closer to God. Amen? Proverbs 27 and verse 17, As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance or the person of his friend. I mean, let's just cut right to the chase. A godless friend will encourage you to be godly. And a godly friend will encourage you to be godly. A godless friend, when you start to do wrong, will say, boy." But a godly friend, when they see you starting to do wrong, will not hesitate to admonish you. Solomon said, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of the enemy are deceitful. Proverbs 27 and verse 6. May the day never come when we do not have friends. No, 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 no. We have to do our part to have friends, don't we? The man who would have friends must himself be friendly. Proverbs 18, 24. 
I, I think of a couple, and, and I'll give you an idea. They're within 5,000 miles of here, and it happened in the last 100 years, okay? That's all I'm going to tell you. This couple was constantly bad-mouthing the church about not being friendly. Now, you need to know that they only came one hour a week, and they got there late for that hour. And the service has already started when they come in and sit on the back seat. And before the preacher can get to the back door, they're running down the sidewalk to leave. And then they're talking about how nobody speaks to them. <laughs> it's kind of like the, uh, the old man that went to sleep in the chair at noontime and his grandson rubbed Lindberger cheese under his mu- on his mustache. And grandpa woke up with a snort and he said, this room stinks. He got up and he walked around the house and he said, this whole house stinks. Then he went outside and he said, the whole world stinks. <laughs> it was grandpa that was stinking. If you're going to have friends, you've got to be friendly, right? But folks, we need friends. And friends are priceless. We ought to thank God every day for the friends that we have. There's no amount of money on earth that can replace a friend. We should rejoice in their faithfulness. We should delight in their presence. But may the day never come that we think that we can choose bad friends and not be adversely affected by that. Be not deceived. Evil companionships corrupt good morals. Well, that's the message for tonight about practical Christian living. We've been talking about friends. I hope it's helpful to you. But I could not end this message tonight talking about friends without talking about our greatest friend. Joseph Scriven, many, many years ago, said it better than I can say it, and you've often sung it. What a friend we have in Jesus. He is a friend who will never forsake us, and he is a friend that will never let us down. Sometimes we sing another song, I'll be a friend to Jesus. Well, let's all be friends to Jesus. And how are we friends of Jesus? From the lips of the Master himself, John 15, 14 says, You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. People's way of thinking to me has always been interesting. A number of years ago, I was in Pennsylvania holding a meeting and Some denominational preacher came to the meeting one night, and on the way out, he said, I'd like to invite you to speak to a group of ministers here in town Thursday morning. Well, I thought that'd be a good opportunity. He said, but before you come, I'd have to know what you're speaking about. I said, well, if you'll let me come speak to your group, I'll speak about the love of God. Well, you just come on. I spoke about the love of God. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. 
And I used John, and the lesson wasn't what he thought it was going to be. But, you know, you, you go out on the street tonight and you interview anybody and you ask them, do you love God? Oh, I love God. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. It's interesting how people talk, think about the Lordship of Christ. Jesus Christ, your Lord, oh, yes, he's my Lord. You know what that means? The word Lord is from the Greek word kurios. It has reference to a master, to the sovereign, to the controller of one's life. Evidently, there were some folks in Jesus' generation that didn't understand the concept of lordship because in Luke 6 and 46, he said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? Loving the Lord, obeying the Lord. Calling him Lord, surrendering to him as Lord. He will be Lord of all, or he won't be Lord at all. Now, take that and come to this matter of being his friend. Oh, there's some folks out there in America tonight that they are avowed enemies of Christ. But most people, if you ask them, are you a friend of Jesus? Oh, yeah, I'm a friend of Jesus. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. How long have you known? How many times have you heard that to be saved, to be a true disciple of the Lord, to become a member of the body of Christ, the church, the body of the saved, how many times have you heard the plan of salvation from the lips of Jesus himself, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins? John 8, 24. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Luke 13, 3 and 5. If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. Matthew 10, 32 and 33. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, 16. How many times have you heard that? And you haven't obeyed that? I'm not being ugly. I'm being honest. You're going to tell me you're his friend. You are my friend. You do what I command you to do. Be faithful to death. I'll give you a crown of life, Revelation 2.10. If you're not faithful and you haven't been faithful for some time, are you his friend? I'll be a friend of Jesus. You be one too. And if you're subject to heaven's invitation tonight, what a friend we have. He's offering that friendship to you. And all the benefits that accompany it, salvation, sonship, forgiveness, purpose, 